welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Sister Laura. Welcome, Sister Laura. Thank you. Good to be with you. Good to be with you, too. I'm, I, as I told you before we started, um, I found out about your book um, through Dr. Vince Bantu, um, who was on our podcast a few weeks ago. And um, I was asking him, did he know any books written about early um, African women? Um, because we do a lot on the early church fathers. And the women are, are sometimes left out. So he recommended your work. And so um, I tracked you down. <laughs> Thank you. Glad you did. And uh, asked you to be on the podcast and you graciously accepted. So you so much for those who don't know who you are could you give them give our audience just a little background about um your story and what you do now i certainly be delighted to um my name is sister laura i'm a benedictine sister which means i am in the old benedictine tradition we date back to about 500 common era and monasticism began probably 300 years before that but we're the expression of monasticism most people are aware of today and when i entered monastic life in my mid-30s uh, we part of formation is learning monastic history and my teacher kept talking about the deserts the desert fathers who are wonderful colorful people but all the sources and the women outnumbered them in two to one and then they go back to telling the stories about the men and I was getting a little angry because I knew women had to have a story out there. So I went in search of the, I'm not a formally trained patristic scholar. Um, probably people would associate more, me more with um, women's Benedictine and monastic history, women's medieval history. But I did go in search of these women and found them in footnotes, endnotes, side comments. But nobody had ever put them together in any kind of comprehensive for, and especially for regular readers, patristic scholars know who these women are. And what one told me was that he that they know all of these women, but they had no idea anyone would be interested. And, of course, that got my Irish up a little bit because women would like to know about our own contribution to Christianity, which is quite significant. And so I just started collecting them. And one day I was speaking at a uh, church nearby and was telling the uh, the connection between the desert ascetics Christianity, which the desert ascetics brought to Ireland when um, the Roman Empire was encroaching upon the desert and early Christians felt like they could not participate in either the taxum or the military of there because, you know, they're out to represent port the 1%, not the 99%. So they were looking for more and more places to get away from the Roman Empire. And so some of them landed in the west of Ireland. And that's actually who brought Christianity to Ireland were these desert ascents. And this woman came up to me, for all I know, she's an angel because I've never seen her since and I never knew her name. And she asked me where I found the women and I said oh, I found them here and there I told her and I just had them in a file in my cabinet and she looked at me and she said you're going to write a book and she turned around and walked off and I knew she was absolutely right I would write a book and I had no idea how you go about doing something like that so that was my second learning was how do you put something like this together and for 
intelligent readers who don't want to get PhDs in patristics to find out about their heritage. And so I very specifically geared it towards uh, intelligent readers. That's awesome. I'm, I'm thankful that you did that. <laughs> You're welcome. And so much more than even I uncovered. I have continued to find more. People send me, scholars send me stories that I didn't know about because I'm Syriac. I don't read the great Ethiopian, you know, Ge'ez. I don't read any of those languages. So I'm, I have people who are the language scholars. Uh, so there's quite a bit out there, you know, and somebody else could write a version too after me and not duplicate what I've done. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, yeah. So, uh, so that kind of gives us a little background. And you, you also teach um, as well, correct? I do. We have a Benedictine University down the road, St. Martin's University, and I teach in the Religious Studies Department, and I teach basically whatever they tell me to, whatever I kind of fill in the gaps. Uh, we have a retreat house here in my monastery, and so I do some retreats, and I meet with people for what's known as spiritual direction or uh, spiritual canyoning, and I go out and do talks, and I'm the archivist for my monastery, and so I, I wear many different hats. You said a very busy woman. <laughs> I'm afraid I am. <laughs> so I'm Keeps life you, interesting, though. I'm honored that you would take the time out to talk to um, oh, today. You. Yeah. Um, so, the, in chapter one, you talk about the world of the desert mothers. Can you share um, with our audience a little bit about uh, what the world of the desert mothers um, would be? Oh, I guess, yeah. Um, Christianity, of course, it was a Jewish movement. Uh, after the destruction of the temple in 70 era and the dispersal of the Jewish community, which include Christians, um, you know, followers of, of the way, um, out of um, what we now know as Israel, the Holy Land, or across the empire. And um, Christianity, like Judaism, started um, following the model of the synagogue, the gathering of at least 10 or 12 adults uh, and home churches. And so home churches are very flexible, and you basically could be established anywhere someone uh, spreading the gospel uh, might land in a city. They can form a home church as in a synagogue and began the gatherings, the breaking of the bread, the breaking up of the word, um, the preaching, healing, prophetic utterances. And basically with um, the Roman Empire dispersing followers of the way and Jews out of uh, the Holy Land, it basically follows the Silk Road. Uh, wherever the merchants went, the preachers of the gospel went. So it went east into what we know as modern-day Afghanistan, uh, China, and then uh, south along the Nile River into what we know as Ethiopia and south into modern-day uh, South Africa, and then also west across the equator. Wherever the trade routes were, preachers of the gospel were, and they would set up churches wherever they met. And Paul, of course, makes reference to that in his letters. And that will continue as the model until probably 350 or 400 when Christianity is legalized, probably not necessarily the best thing that happened to Christianity when the emperor used it for Christianity for political ends, but it did happen. Uh, so until then, it was the home churches, and then they started gathering in basilicas, which was not a church. Uh, originally, the word basilica meant like a town hall, and that's when it starts becoming a more public religion. And so then we have a balance between home churches, which some will become monasteries, 
and the public churches. Uh, and they basically follow a parallel track. Uh, home churches, monasteries are always out on the edge of empire. They were always out on the edge of the church. That's basically where we belong. We don't belong in the heart of institutional church. But, uh, we belong out on the edge. Um, and it was the gathering of for um, the study of scripture, for uh, praying of the Psalms, um, for teaching, um, for uh, gathering, for healing and prophetic utterances. Um, and those will work into monasteries, and the desert ascetics will become like tangent to that. Uh, desert ascetics basically were seeking to separate themselves from the Roman Empire and to devote their lives totally to the search for God. Um, today, um, we still have de desert ascetics in our midst to, uh, to this day, but the tradition of spiritual direction grows out of these desert mothers and fathers and so they're going out into the literally a desert and metaphorically a desert. So sometimes they are within a house, within a compound. Uh, these larger homes would have a brick uh, wall around the outer edge of their compound, and then they have multiple buildings. The kitchen would always be separate from the quarters. And so they would sometimes also settle there. Sometimes they actually live the family tomb. Sounds really gothic to us today, but um, family tombs were places where people gathered to uh, celebrate the memory of ancestors, but it was also a place where they would picnic as families. I mean, as, as I said, it sounds a little gruesome to our mind today, but uh, they did not have that fear of death or denial of death that are uh, many cultures, not all cultures, uh, have today uh, where we try to whitewash that experience and you hide from it. Um, it's kind of tragic that my nieces and nephews grandparents, and so they don't know what normal aging is, which is kind of sad. But these desert ascetic uh, mausoleums, the family tomb, and they would live within that tomb, and it was kind of like keeping death ever before they're undisturbed because robbers, generally speaking, were too afraid to go into a cemetery to rob anything. And so a woman wanted to live alone, and she lived in the mausoleum, which always had a gate, you know, to close it. Uh, she would actually be safe at night, and she could live in quiet and solitude. But it was about removing all, all of the attachments of the Roman Empire, of Roman cultural life, in order to turn their focus towards um, things divine and into the next life. Because their goal was to become like the angels, um, to, to remove all trappings, including kind of sexual identity. Um, we have a different sense of body today than they did back then, but um, they really were trying to move beyond body to build the spiritual connection between their own life and the search for, you know, for God um, and the power of the Holy Spirit, which was very important to them. Sister Laura, what would be um, the contributions of early um, church mothers? Um, we hear about the Augustine, the Clement of Alexandria, Athanasius, uh, but we don't hear about the contributions of the early church mothers. Can you give us their contribution to Christianity? Absolutely. Frequently, Augustine, others will come for their spiritual formation, for challenging them to give their lives to the gospel, to stop um, being so heavily involved in Roman culture and to start living by, you know, Christian valor are really important. One is a woman by the name of Macrina the Younger. Uh, that's because her grandmother is known as Macrina the Elder, and she was the wife of a and they were major supporters of 
the Korean community during um, several significations and some serious droughts where there was hunger in eastern present-day Turkey. It was known as Asia Minor back then. But Macrina the Younger, her granddaughter, was the oldest of 12 children. And she has a younger brother, Basil the Great, and Greg of Nazianzen. And then they have a close family friend, Gregory of Nyssa. And the three are considered dominant church fathers in the Orthodox traditions. But it's their older sister, Macrina, who taught them everything about Christianity, taught them a way of life, who had actually spent them to give up their rather wanton lifestyle and to get baptized and to get serious about serving the gospel. And as is common back then, frequently women never wrote their own biographies. Someone else wrote it for her. It was considered vain um, narcissist memoirs and publish them. Back then it would have been some, a professional who had been hired to write your for you. So someone was hired to her own teachings and through her brother's memories. And one of the things they did, which was so lovely, is to read her last. It's a compilation of everything she ever taught them, and they put it metaphorically in her mouth as she's dying. And it's this big, long, lovely sermon that she gives that's kind of of her understanding of the Christian life and the Christian call, which in part is about support, serving the marginalized, standing up and against the corruption of the Roman Empire. Another one is a deaconess by the name of Olympias, who was a member of the imperial family. She lived in the 300s, and she was probably the equivalent of Bill and Melinda in terms of wealth, and that's what patristic scholars tell us. Oh, wow. She was oh, extraordinarily wow. wealthy. She refuses to participate in the antics of the imperial family. She dedicates her life to serving the gospel. She is an ordained deaconess, which means she is recognized as helping with baptisms, with preaching. Deacons, of course, are always supposed to be the face of the church to the poor, so out uh, feeding prisoners and paying off their debt, taking care of orphans and um, not participating in the military. It was understood back then that if you were a follower of the gospel, you could not be serving in the military. And so she needed to help step out of the military because they have given their life to the people now. She founded a monastery in Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. The ruins are there underneath the foundation. She had about 250, but she to literally let go of all her wealth, but do it responsibly. So funding hospitals, setting press free, um, taking care of widows and orphans, building churches, whatever it is the growing church needed, she was funding and released the responsibility for that, just giving guidelines as to what she wanted to see have her money because she was trying to step away from all the imperial trappings of the life she was born into. Kind of hard to understand today, but there was no movement up and down the social ladder. Whatever station in life you were born to, that is where you stayed. And she took on the Roman emperor. Um, her best friend was John Chrysostom, the golden-tongued. And when he got was driven out of Constantinople for condemning the corruption and immorality of the imperial family, her family, um, she became his great supporter financially and politically. We have his letters to her. Unfortunately, somewhere over the centuries, her letters to him got lost, which is tragic. And maybe when they dig up one of these great finds in the desert, her letters will reappear again. I dream of that anyway. But at this point, we don't have her letters to him. But he considered her to be his foundation and his backbone. And there are many other women out there. And it's like shadow reading. It's kind of like conducting 
Um, if you read these whodunits, trying to find the evidence of where these women were and are, it is out there. And you, your generation is peak generation began. You are going back to original source documentation. You're doing new translations from the original language into good American English. American English, that's what people who are not Native American English speakers tell me that we have the easiest language to translate. And, you know, they're uncovering monasteries under the sand in um, Ethiopia and in, in the artwork. You read the artwork and it starts telling you what the people believed, what they them because it's a reflection of their spirit. So marvelous investigations are being done. What doctrinal contributions can we see from the writings of the early church mothers? Absolutely. Doctrinally, they will support Athanasius down at one point, I think, to Athanasius and one other ship, as opposed to all the other emperor who had no business getting involved in the theology of the Christian church. But they will generally come down pretty specific side of defending Athanasius over and against his detractors. Um, so they have no fully human and fully divine, not leaning you know, as you know, one heresy, that's a word I'm reluctant to use because heresy can be a political tool as well. But one side said that Jesus is fully human, uh, a bit more human than you and I with inklings of div divinity. And another said, no, he was fully divine and it just appeared like he was a human first person. They were struggling with how he could be both. And that's really a Greek problem and a Latin problem. That is not a Jewish problem. Um, they never had a problem with how God did a thing. If a God did a thing, then God did a thing, which in this case was to come to us in fully human form and suffer and experience everything you and I did and remind us that it is better to love than to hate, and he would rather die than hate. Um, other contributions was to remind us that the relationship with the divine is more important than theology, even though they got involved in theological debates, even though they were great defenders of literally bishops and monks who were being driven out by Roman troops because they didn't support the Roman, the Roman emperor's position on some theological issue. Um, they consistently reminded us, first and foremost, we need to cultivate and protect our relationship with the divine, that we need to walk the talk. That would be our language today. We would, you know, you have to have that relationship, that integrity before you really start preaching. I mean, that's never black or white, but um, we need to have that relationship first and we need to continue to cultivate that relationship all throughout our life. So take time to step away and have periods of silence, of um, prayerfully reading scripture, of keeping up on um, the writings, both contemporary and of times past. Always remembering hospitality of um, seeing the face of the invisible and the fountain. Uh, consistently, they were going into garbage dumps to find the poor, the unknown, and take them out and help them. Desert ascetics always tithed 10% of their income first and foremost before they bought supplies or did anything. They would go into the village, they would give they would sell what they had made, give 10% to the local deacon, who might be a man or a woman, uh, and buy their supplies, and then if there was anything left over, give that away. They literally lived month to month because uh, they wanted to experience that utter um, dependence upon God's provision in their life. So they remind us of simplicity. They remind us of um, attending to our values. Are we living by what we say that we value? Um, in my own neighborhood, one of the things we do, Catholic Sisters, is that we're very, very careful about where we place our retirement funds. We don't 
don't invest in the military, we don't invest in um, the abortion industry, we don't invest in certain industries that treat employees very inappropriately or who trash the environment. So our return on our investment might be lower, but we are value-driven. We're driven by what we say we believe people of the gospel. That's not always an easy choice for people to make, but do we stop and think about what we give our money to, what we spend our money on, where we're doing our business, uh, being mindful of that, because it does impact, you know, certain corporations, their employees terribly, and we have no business giving our business to them. That's what the gospel, at least to me, is telling us. That's what the Desert Mothers would say. They were very careful about the use of their uh, money. Oh, wow, that's helpful. And, and it's so funny because I went through, um, I took church history courses during my seminary time and there's not a lot of focus on the the desert mothers and just hearing you talk about the impact that they had not only on the community but on the church fathers that we we hear about um is just really encouraging to know that me as especially as a woman um, um. It, it, to see other women that have made an impact throughout church history is phenomenal Women have had a huge impact throughout history, and it's unfortunate that church historians, I think it's getting better, but church historians have consistently told the story over and over again, rather than stopping and asking, who am I not seeing, who am I not hearing? Um, Africa made a huge contribution to Christianity and is doing so again. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church knows that the churches of the South now, and it's South America and Africa who are the teaching magisterium of the church, not those of us of Western Europe and North America. Um, how are we listening to them? How are we hearing them? Uh, my most recent book is on a many women who were given the nickname of Begin, uh, and they were mostly in Western Europe and Central and South America. And they're kind of the medieval desert ascetic. And you don't hear about them in history books, and yet they had a huge impact on theology and on calling the church to reform in medieval ages. This is true in the early church as well. Patristic scholars tell us that Christianity was actually originally a woman's movement. We don't hear that being told. We're being told you know, there were the 12, who, the 12 who followed Jesus. Well, the point was there were 12 guys, but there were a whole slew of women who were out there uh, work, working alongside Jesus and preaching and supporting the church after his crucifixion and resurrection. Of course, it's a woman he appeared to first, isn't it? Mary of Magdala. And she's called the Apostle to the Apostles and First Witness to the Resurrection. And she gets turned into a Reformed prostitute in medieval time. And that's because they mixed up Mary of Egypt, who's a great, colorful... I didn't include her in my book because there already is a book out called uh, Harlots of the Desert, which is a marvelous, you might want to pick that one up, a story of, um, in particular, three women who were dominant forces in the early church. And she's always portrayed as John the Baptist, so with a animal skin and long hair and, you know, a staff. That's Mary of Egypt. That is not Mary of Magdala, who was a major leader in the early church. Uh, what scholars tell us is that it was a woman's movement, and then they remind us that guys of no importance, you know, by society standard, lepers and the very, very poor, would be rolled in with the women and children. But it was majorly a woman's movement. Um. Yeah, to recoup that. <laughs> That's what I teach over at my college. I mean, they're great guys, too. But I remind the women that women have always been a major force in Christianity. We just don't tell our stories. Mm -hmm. 
Um, what would you like to leave um, with our listeners? What have we not discussed that you would like us to talk about before uh, we close out this interview? Oh, wow. That's a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> because I'd like, like to have a lot more time. Um, I try to tell the stories just very briefly. There's a lot more information out there on uh, some of these women and the different ways that they served the gospel. One of the things I did learn while I was uh, searching out these women is that sometimes these women were honored as desert ascetics. A few of them were who did not hold to the orthodox position, but they were honored because of their compassion for their poor, for the poor and for their um, willingness to um, follow the spirit as they were understanding spirit. So in other words, our orthopraxis is, might be more important than orthodoxy. So right practice versus right thinking. Uh, so the importance of the practice part, and that's what changes our heart, I think, over the course of time. Um, I think I would also leave people with, um, there's a reason why these women are speaking to us again today, that uh, it really began, as far as I can tell, with women in the uh, Episcopal Anglican tradition, first discovered the Desert Fathers, and I think it's because we're being called to slow down, we're being called to live more intentionally, we're being called to form community, and especially for those who are alienated for whatever reason, wrong social class, you know, whatever that means, um, not speaking English as a first language, whatever our issue might be, but that we're being called to stretch across into our, um, out of our comfort zone to connect with the Christ who is waiting for us on the other side. The desert ascetics had no control over who came to their cave, but they received all as Christ. And how do we do that? And how might we do that better? Um, to walk into neighborhoods that maybe we're uncomfortable with, with a smile on our face and to find out what the gospel message is that's waiting to be preached to us there. Wow, that's helpful. Where, where can um, folks get your book? Oh, any of your independent local bookstores or certainly online as well. Uh, the Forgotten Desert Mothers is through Paulus Prest, with, which is a major um, religious publishing house. And, you know, I would encourage your listeners to also pick up um, the wisdom of the Beguines and find out another piece of women's Christian history that most people don't know about, and that's Blue Bridge Publishing House. Uh, but they can just Google my name, and I think it'll come up in places. Yes, and it's also on Amazon.com as well. For oh, yeah. It is on Amazon. So, uh, <laughs> um, and how can uh, folks get in contact with you? You're on uh, Facebook. Are you on Twitter as well? Oh, heavens, no, I don't own one of those devices. I am on <laughs> Facebook, and I have an email, several emails, but lswan at stplacid.org, St. Placid. That's the name of my monastery here in the Pacific Northwest, and I'd be more than happy to hear from anyone. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sister Laura. I think this will be um, a great resource to all that hear it, and remember to get her book. Um, if you want to know more and I encourage you to um, because this is a part of our history that we need to know a very, very important part yeah
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project Podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it